0: This season, we're proud to partner with Wave. Do you know seven out of 10 creators don't have enough money set aside for a financial crisis? It's super important to have the right tools and insights to stay in control. And let's be honest, most of us did not become money managers. So let the experts do the work. Wave is affordable, one-stop money management for creators. It streamlines invoicing, payments, payroll, all in one place, keeping you in complete control. Plus Wave is offering a free personal 20-minute session with one of their bookkeeping coaches when you create a free account. A normally $99 cost, Wave wants to make expert advice accessible for creators and take the fear and intimidation out of bookkeeping taxes. Spots are limited, so don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash Welcome to It's No Fluke, your weekly podcast about the untold stories and uncharted waters in culture and creativity. As the basis for AJR, Adam Met has traveled the world on sold out tours, achieved platinum certifications in numerous countries, and recorded a repertoire of music that has garnered more than 7 billion streams worldwide. I'm not checking, but I'm probably responsible for at least 3,000 of those. The interests of Adam bridge music, sustainability, law, academia, policy, marketing, and technology. He's a PhD and is the founder and executive director of Planet Reimagined. He leads a nonprofit that addresses climate change systems through media, academic research fellowships, and centimeters initiatives. Josh Campbell joining us as well as the CEO of Worth Media. He serves on the board of Planet Reimagined and was the CEO of Techonomy Media, which was sold to Clarem Holdings for his parent company. At Techonomy, Josh spent eight years driving sustainable business growth through strategic partnerships and new product development. He built Techonomy to be one of the leading media companies covering technology and its impact on business and society. So we get into a very deep discussion about how to tackle climate change, what needs to be done, and the real ways that can be done. Let's go. So you can start a podcast in a variety of different ways. I want to start mindset. Um, When you're looking to tackle a big idea, in this case, climate, but any big idea, I think a lot of people just don't even do a thing because it's too big. Um, Some are stuck in paralysis with analysis. And then in this case, you try and tackle a big idea like climate. Where do you start?
1: I have wow. no idea. Going
2: <laughs> yeah, where where do you start? Um, and I and I think you're right. I mean, I think when you look at um, all the different constituents who could have a different impact, right, from mm-hmm. the entrepreneurs to the investors to the big companies to consumers, it's it is overwhelming, right? We all kind of you know you look at some of the campaigns that have happened right you know you look back at the stop sucking campaign right straws Mm -hmm. you realize it's not about straws right it's about like how do we actually change individual behavior and no matter how much you think you know your individual change will will have i think you know it's it's all about that i mean obviously from our standpoint as a media company we are we see ourselves as a convener of those various constituents and Mm-hmm. The the magic that happens when you bring entrepreneurs with big companies, with investors who have the money to make some of these things happen. Um, but but yeah, sometimes it's uh it it takes uh it takes a village, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Um when I'm thinking about starting, I always start with the emotion, meaning how can you reach people by figuring out the emotion that they want to be feeling when engaging mm. people in a cause, whether it's climate or any of any other kind of social action movement, there are a lot of people that want to be activated through fear or anger. There are a lot of people that want to be activated through excitement. There are people that are want to be activated because they're surprised and are learning something they didn't know before. So when I think about getting started, I think about the people that I want to reach. And the emotions that I need to evoke in them in order to get them engaged. And that's different from what Josh was saying. It's different if you're talking to a CEO. It's different if you're talking to people who are marching in the streets. It's different if you're talking to investors or foundations or politicians. You need to be able to reach them using a specific way of communicating that's going to help them to evoke a certain emotion. Yeah, what I'm getting is there's kind of flexibility
0: in messaging, too, because of all those different constituencies and all you different things, too. And I would also assume the second part of that question is that the action has to be incremental because the, you know, trying to get a big action to happen very quickly. So most things I see that are successful, and I think you probably thought of this, too, um, and please stop me at any point, is that, you know, I think what you want people to do is you want them to take one small step to get to another step to get to another step to hopefully then enact change, right?
2: Yeah, but I think, you know, to your point, yes, the message has to be different depending on, you know, the group you're trying to uh, resonate with. But also the action is different, right? So when you think Mm -hmm. about a big corporation, not every corporation, you know, has the same set of tools to use to make change, right? If I'm a big multinational manufacturer, right? The way I think about where I can make change from the raw materials through my supply chain to, you know, versus I'm a software company and Mm -hmm. I, you know, talk about just my offices or my cloud, right, so you don't, there's no, uh, you know, we could use any analogy, there's no silver bullet, right? So you think about it, it's, we need to figure out, right? Every company, every individual, we're trying harder, right? That's why I think like, like we're we're trying to say to investors, okay, invest in these areas to investors to make their impact. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get them to do something different, right? So from a messaging standpoint, even harders who care about financial returns, we may have to speak a language about, hey, this is a huge business opportunity. And actually you're going to get higher or at least, you know, comparable returns um, versus again, a company who's thinking about you know, upstream and downstream, scope two, scope three, and how their suppliers and their customers think. So it is complex in that it's a different message and it's also a different action.
1: I I like that framing a lot because when you think about it in terms of incremental action, there have been a lot of sociological and psychological studies that when people take a small action, they think, oh, I took my action for the day, I'm done, I don't need to do anything else. And then they don't participate anymore. If you look at it from the perspective that Josh was just talking about as these big opportunities, then you're going to get people to take much larger steps because whether it's a way of moving your company forward from an investment perspective, getting your constituents excited, if you're talking about big policy, you have to be thinking about how the opportunities can attract all of these different kinds of people. So as much as, yes, we want to move people up that ladder of engagement, I'm always a little bit hesitant to do that because yeah, the straw, a lot of people who switched to a paper straw said, I took my action. I'm good. I helped the planet. I'm not going to do anything else. And that's a problem. Well, it's kind of like
0: the analogy of you tell somebody that you need to get in 10,000 steps and then they get to about 10,005 and and they stop. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, if we told people they needed to get to 20,000
2: steps, they'd probably go to Um, 20,000. But then you have a class action lawsuit saying, well, I did my 10,000 steps and didn't lose weight. Right. So it it comes down to it is in based on the individual. Right. A lot of this has to come down to is there's no solution. You know, they say for climate change, it's a thousand shots on goal or it's a silver Mm. buckshot. Right. It's we have to do everything. Right. The the, the problem is, you know, right now is there's no bad ideas. Right. There's you know, so I I think that, that when you talk about climate, no matter if you're talking about, lower consumption or carbon sequestration or, you know, renewable energy, it's an and 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 we need to do all Mm -hmm. of them, right, versus like one saying, like, so I think that's, you know, also one of the issues is it's, there's no bad idea, you know, what my kids say, there's no bad ideas when you're brainstorming, like, literally, Mm -hmm. there's no bad ideas in climate change, right, we should just be doing as much as we can. Yeah.
0: Josh, you gave me a really good opportunity to uh, allude to the fact that that one person was suing Taco Bell because the menu like shows a very big Mexican pizza, but then they get it and it's much smaller, and so it's like expectation versus reality. And I think that's the same thing in a lot of stuff. Um, the other thing is, I was talking to Dr. Marcus Collins, like when I don't know it's going to be like three or four episodes back once we air this. But what's interesting is you were making this, you know, very good point about how when you're working with corporations that you have to make, you know, a monetary argument, right? You have to make that like, this is a business argument too. It's not just a moral argument because he had a really good thing in Forbes and he was talking about, he's like, he's like, he was making this business argument for why you shouldn't be canceling diversity. He's like, yeah, okay. We're canceling diversity here and there. He's like, and we make moral arguments all the time. He's like, but at some point it's just bad for business to also be, you know, siphoning yourself off to 30% of the population. So I think, you know, this is the reality we live in too, that, you know, sometimes we have to just make this a business imperative too, right?
2: Yeah, and I think, look, I'd love to hear Adam's thought on generationally, but, Mm. you know, you also have a recruiting and retention, right? So when you think about companies that want to, you know, yes, there's the bottom line, the double bottom line, the triple bottom line, but there's also a recruiting and retention issue, right? So if you want to hire millennials, Gen Z, they care more about, I work for a company that's responsible. And again, Adam, I'm sure you see from the fans even, you know, generationally the one, you know, they, they care more.
1: Yep, that people are willing to purchase clothing that's made, much more willing to purchase clothing that's made sustainably, um, purchase concert tickets if they know their carbon footprint is being offset. And I don't want to get into the whole conversation about carbon footprint <laughs> and it being put yeah. on the individual, but that's a whole different discussion for probably a different podcast. But when we when we talk to the fans, it's less about the individual responsibility and they see it more as a collective responsibility. And the same thing happens when I'm doing policy work. Like when I'm in DC and I'm working with Congress or the White House and we're working on renewable energy policy, they always say, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I can sell this to my constituents, but what's the business case for it? How can we go and sit down with the Chevrons and Exxons and ConocoPhillips of the world and make a really compelling case for renewable energy And that's what a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is when I sit down with Republicans, I am making a case for policy that is a completely different case for the exact same policy as I am when I'm sitting down with Democrats. I'm talking about energy security. I'm talking about jobs. I'm talking about stimulating the local economy when I'm talking to Republicans. When I'm talking to Democrats, I'm talking about preventing emissions, pulling carbon out of the air, uh, making sure transmission is set up properly. And then when I sit down with the Chevrons of the world and ConocoPhillips, it's completely a business case. So the 30-second version of of what we've been working on is, if you think about it, there's a tremendous amount of land that's been leased to oil and gas companies in the United States, public land. Mm -hmm. And we created this way of reutilizing public land that's already been disturbed by oil and gas and putting renewable energy on top of it. All the infrastructure is already there. All the transmission is already there. The environmental review has already been done. It speeds up the process. So there's a whole bunch of new potential for renewable energy. We sit down with ConocoPhillips and say, you can create a joint venture with a solar company and put it on the same land that you already have leased. You're producing a huge amount of new electricity. The transmission is already there. And when that land is no longer viable for you producing oil and gas, the sun is still going to be shining. That's how we make a business case to oil and gas companies so they can move faster to renewables. For me, it's not the investing in the direct air capture, and it's not investing in, you know, that kind of approach because it's too easy for them to say, "Okay, I'm going to remove money from that investment. A lot of these companies have said now, you know, I'm just going to not continue with my net, my net zero commitments. If you make that really strong business case, then they'll be able to move forward with it. So that was a long-winded way of saying you need to meet business where business is. Well, I like when you do my right job
0: for me too because that was going to be one of my follow-ups is kind of like getting into the specific cases of it too because I think that's fascinating for people to understand kind of the thought process, which would be my next pullback question is, okay, one, what is your moment where you go, I have to do something about this, right? Did you, Did you have a seminal moment where you... You know you had to do something about this and then i'll i'll ask the secondary question after that
2: yeah i mean look for me you know really it was it was a, initially a fascination with the u.n sustainable development goals and looking at the definition of you know all these problems and and the sub goals beneath this the 17 that we have to to solve and I I honestly, I took it from a business standpoint, right? the first number I heard was it's Mm -hmm. a $1.5 trillion business opportunity to solve the UN SDGs. Um, You know, that number is, is, you know, was way underestimated. It's much bigger now. So we took it, you know, as a, as a media company as, wow, there's a real opportunity here to convene people and to highlight the SDGs. I think we then quickly saw that climate, um, and, and the multiple SDGs focused on climate should be at the top. Um, and, and, you know, then I look at just, you know, the you know, our kids and, uh, you know, again, to Adam's point about, you know, it's it's a shame that it's become politicized and a partisan issue, um, you know, for any of us that have dealt with extreme weather and, and some of the, you know, some of the, the direct impact of climate change, it's just a problem we should all be solving. So for me, it was, wow, it's a great business opportunity for us to be a convener around these topics. But at the same time, you know, this is where, you know, I could preach around conscious capitalism. It's still a great business, but it actually is is advancing conversations that are so important for the world. Um, so, you know, again, you know, while I'd love to say, hey, I, I took a purely altruistic approach and. Thought, I, I saw it as, wow, this is a great business opportunity for us as a company at the same time. It, it is truly the, the doing well and doing good.
1: I kind of fell into it from two different perspectives. So the first was when I was in high school. Um, when I was about 16, I was taking a course in high school in human rights. And it was very weird to have a human rights course yeah. offered in a public high school. Um, But we took a field trip and saw somebody named Mary Robinson speak. Mary Robinson used to be the president of Ireland. And now she runs an organization called The Elders. And she was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. She is incredible. And she made the most compelling case for why the human part of climate change is how we're going to address these issues. And her kind of foreseeing the future was 100% right. The number of people that have lost their homes due to extreme weather, the number of climate refugees we have. So her, that was one piece of it from an academic perspective. But then the other piece of it was being on the road and touring. Cool. Seeing these people that we could bring together over something like music really started my wheels spinning about the opportunity of bringing people together over something different over a cause, over climate action. And if we can get people excited and motivated in the way that they are about music, then that's the whole ballgame. I mean, the all of the data says it takes about 3.5% of a population mobilizing over something to get real policy change done. That's nothing compared to the number of people that attend concerts, attend sports games, yep. attend any sort of kind of creative engagement. The people are there and they're coming together. If we can just use it for a slightly different purpose, that's how we're going to get the change to happen. So those two pieces coming together. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing when and when you were talking a little bit earlier, and you're making the
0: case, right, and you're making this very specific case to different entities. Um, From the time you go to Plant Reimagined to the time you get to the pitch, How do you identify what is the the most applicable, most important, most accessible way to actually pitch that work with people, get things done?
1: That's a good question. So with Planet Reimagined, we built the entire organization on this idea that research currently lives in a very separate place from advocacy. Mm. And that's a problem. Research is done in academic institutions, as research is done in think tanks. Advocacy is done at advocacy organizations. It's done by people marching in the streets, but there's a real disconnect between the two. So what we do is we do research with an eye towards how are we going to implement it from an advocacy perspective. So from the beginning, we're thinking about framing. As we're writing our white papers, we're thinking about how we can attack each issue from multiple perspectives. We're thinking about Who are the detractors going to be? Who is going to come forward and say, this is a problem? Hmm. How can we, from the very beginning, as we're doing the research, think about all of those different opinions? So whether we're doing projects on urban rooftop farming or energy or this um, big uh, data project we're doing now about measuring the effectiveness of celebrities in engaging people around climate, um, we're always thinking about the messaging from when we're measuring our first little bit of data. Okay, different question,
0: but related. Um, and I'll let, I'll this is choose your own adventure. On your most optimistic or on your most pessimistic day, where are we currently?
1: I'll let Josh go first and then I'll take the opposite one. <laughs> Perfect. Look at that. It's like debate class.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, and and again I think you could probably debate and argue either side, right? So I think it's it is it is a hard one to take. I think um I recognize that that 2 years ago, um, you know, annually I go to World Economic Forum in Davos and, you know, obviously usually they debate a whole bunch of issues facing the world, you know, you know, facing the economy, you know, global economies, and I saw this huge shift Two years ago to climate. Um, I saw that the annual meeting in Davos um, had had really shifted and, and saw that CEOs were putting this at the top of their agenda in which they wanted to discuss. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic that at this point, you know, we have all the right people, um, you know, from business, from the investment community, uh, technology. I mean, when you look across the, the tech sector, you know, all the technology CEOs, which will contribute, I think, a large, you know, sort of portion towards the solutions um, have been mobilized. Um, I think what, what worries me in, in time of recession or potential economic downturn, you know, we do sort of have to really think about when we think about all the various stakeholders, you know, the environment being one and shareholders being one, you um, that the shareholder will probably win out, um, which I'm, I'm not arguing is a bad thing. But um, when we look at the dollars going into solving these major issues, uh, no matter if it's through philanthropy or through you know some of these you know solution providers uh, and companies, I just do worry based on the economy how much the attention will continue to to be funneled towards climate change.
1: So you started positive and went negative. So I'll I'll go the other way around. <laughs> Sounds good. It's a challenge, but go for it, Adam. <laughs> um, about a week and a half ago, I sat down with the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See, which is the Vatican, mm-hmm. and um, had a very long conversation with them about the role that religion plays in convincing people that climate change is a problem. Mm. And one thing that I heard is that there is still a really big disconnect between extreme weather events and understanding that that is climate change. And that really scares me because you seeing the heat waves across the U.S., across Italy. I mean, I'm living it right now. I'm in Paris at the moment, but we're headed to Greece next week. We were in Italy. We were in Austria. We were in all of these places breaking heat records fact that people are not seeing that connection between the two means we have a real communications problem to the general public
0: mm-hmm.
1: now on the flip side of that we also have one of the most liberal popes that we've had in a very very long time and the pope is a unique character because the pope can cross country borders
0: mm-hmm. can
1: cross race borders can cross gender borders can cross ethnicities um, And the Pope is extremely liberal and is going around trying to make the connection between these two things. He has a massive, massive audience. And for him to be going out there and talking about everything from, you know, gender issues to climate, he is really making moves, especially in an area of the population that in our minds we think is very anti-climate science, anti-focused on, you know, making a difference in climate change. So that gives me some hope that we do have this kind of unifying figure for Catholicism to really move forward the climate message.
0: So this kind of ties into a fascination that I currently have. So bear with me here for a second. Right. But but it's it's like, yes, because there are so many times that we will talk to each other and we will appear completely normal. We'll have normal conversations with each other. And then matter of factly somebody will just be like yeah i watch flat earth TikTok all the time what's the big deal you know it's like you can have this normal conversation and these just little bits and pieces exist so when you bring up this religion example that is again one of those pieces where it's like the the analytical side of the brain says one thing the religious side says another and one will jump the other because of of faith um so again that part fascinates me i you know, I mean, look, we're at on the day that we're recording. It's like the fourth tropical storm ever to hit Los Angeles in like the yeah. last 50 years. I mean, that's I mean, there are, there are data points everywhere that suggest to you. It's kind of weird. The other thing that I wanted to bring up just as an but aside is,
2: is, you know, you talk about, you know, we could be presenting all this data, um, but still not want to believe what's happening or okay. have our own set of beliefs. You know, there's alternative you know, everyone I've, you know, there's people I talk to that have been tracking weather data for, you know, 100 plus years, and would argue that this is cyclical. um, And that, you know, there's been hotter decades, there's, you know, and this is just so uh, while we can sit here and rationally say, yeah, look at all this extreme weather. And I think to Adam's point also is, I don't think people fully embrace and understand what this means, right? Like what it means with the polarized caps melting, what that means from the refraction of the sun, mm-hmm. like they don't understand the science and why we should be freaked out. So they just say, oh, storms, heat, right? You know, so uh, the worry is that there are, you know, there are data sets and people out there that do talk about that, you know, you know, we're you know, that some groups would say if the sky is falling, and others would say, hey, guys, just tough it out. This is just normal cycle we're going through.
0: Yes, when stuff is incremental, right? It's a little harder to notice it. Like I saw that the study, like buildings are sinking just ever so slightly in New York, or you have buildings that are tipping ever so slightly in San Francisco. Josh, you when you talked about you go to World Economic Forum a couple of years ago and you start to see that shift. One of the interesting so full disclosure, I live in Michigan. And we here have a meeting in Cleveland, and somebody goes on stage without even provocation and says, hey, the next civil war is getting fought over water and we're hanging on to it. You start to notice when those things get into the public forum and get into public discussion that people are now like, oh, now we want to hold on to assets too. You can understand that everybody is kind of pointing their attention to something too. It was just something that absolutely stood out to me because it's an area where, no, we don't talk about that much here. And then that happened.
2: Yeah. And I mean, even look at the SDGs, how many are water related? Right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they're, 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 you know, in all types of water, right. Like, even when you start to think of that, it's not only oceans, it's, you know, so uh, and even the ecology. Right. So I think there's still a lot of education that needs to happen about what does this really mean? Right. When you look at, you know, we're down right now in the Florida Keys. Right. The water was one hundred and five degrees um, mm. you know, a couple of weeks ago. Well, what does that mean to the marine life, to the coral? And what is the ripple effect that that then has on ecology and the local so uh, you know i think that there are probably plenty of people who don't even you know understand or want to understand or have interest so right i think you know for the work that that adam's doing and as we talk about just highlighting these issues right again i'll go back to as a media company as you know with planet reimagine with the work adam's doing you know with the band it's about education, it's about awareness, because the only way you're gonna create that action is if first people accept that there's a problem, um, you know, and then they accept there's a problem, and then from there, they accept that they're able to do something about it. You know, without that,
1: you know, it's, it's all futile. The, the example that you gave, Jeff, I think is such a perfect microcosm for everything that we're doing, you said somebody came on stage and said the next civil war is going to be fought over water. That sentence is a really important one to dissect because they didn't say we have a water problem. They didn't say we're going to run out of fresh water. They said the next civil war. And what does that mean? That means conflict between people. That means we're going to have issues between people. And that means that people are at the center of the problem.
2: Exactly. So
1: that's, kind of how my fascination with the climate began in that story with Mary Robinson but at the same time it's why when I was in school I ended up doing my PhD in human rights and sustainable development because there's that human piece of it and when connecting it back to what Josh just said everything that we're doing in try- in terms of trying to communicate to a wider audience and trying to engage a wider audience it's just as much about the issue itself. Yes, we're doing big projects around renewable energy, around you know urban farming, around rivers and, and, and building communities there. But at the end of the day, it's about the people and making sure that people can continue to live lives on this planet. And that is gonna take so much engagement. And honestly, it's why I love participating in Techonomy Climate. Now I've done it a, a handful of times and it is such a great place because it brings people together in a way that you don't see in other places you even you even don't see this at the World economic Forum. You see people from the political space come together with the nonprofit space, come together with you know CEOs, you have young people there' presenting, you have people who have spent forever like Josh said, working on the science, and you get people from all of these different perspectives, and you get to share ideas, and it's living in this world of complexity that then you can take mush into this ball and find a way to communicate it. But if you don't let the complexity live front and center for a little while, then you're not going to have these solutions. And that's one of the reasons why I really love Techonomy, because it allows me a a place to be complex, to be complicated in front of the people who are willing to hear about that complexity. Because if we just focus on the TikTok side of things or the, the X side of things and try and dilute things down, then We're never going to get to people who really are going to take the time to understand it. They're never going to internalize it if it's 30 characters. Adam, you gave me a perfect setup. I'm going to come to that after the break.
0: When we return, Adam, Josh, and I talk more about climate as it relates to the media and from the view of the optimist, the pessimist, and in between. You can join Adam, Josh, Seth Godin, and more at Economy Climate on September 20th at City Winery NYC for a conversation about how you can address tech with climate change. Link in the show description, enter the code shorty, and receive a $100 discount. And now, a message from WAVE. Money management, like a lot of things in my life, currently sits on a notes app as a thing I should be doing, but I'm not currently doing. Managing your money and accessing expert advice shouldn't be hard, and that's why It's No Fluke is proud to partner with Wave. Wave offers an easy-use suite of money management tools for creators in one place, streamlining your bookkeeping and saving you major time. Plus, when you create a free Wave account, you'll get a free personal 20-minute session with one of Wave's bookkeeping coaches, normally priced at $99. It's not a sales call. You can ask any questions you have about bookkeeping and get expert advice. The goal is to help you feel confident and in control of your finances. Spots are limited. Don't wait. Visit WaveApps.com/nofluke to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S.com/nofluke. That's WaveApps.com/nofluke. Josh, what role does the media publications play in helping to drive impact? Um, I mean, what drives, I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, but what drives your passion with editorial?
2: Yeah. And I think, look, uh, you know, when we think about uh, us as an integrated media company, you know, we think of it a couple different ways, right? We think about convening people, right? What could you do in a physical environment by bringing people together um, from, you know, we always talk about sort of this multi-stakeholder conversation. And I think the, you know, the thing we maybe learned during the pandemic was the serendipity that happens when you create collisions at physical events that spark ideas is is the magic and why I love live events, right? The The ability to put a couple hundred people together, as Adam mentioned, with diverse backgrounds, who may sit down over lunch with a napkin and sketch out some new ideas. Um, we don't we do not do that on Zoom, right? We don't just randomly bump into people and say, hey, you, you're interested in climate. I, I do this. Let's like kind of just brainstorm. Um, so, you know, as, as a media company, first and foremost, we see ourselves as that catalyst that can bring people together from diverse backgrounds, right? This year we have everyone from... Katherine Hayhoe from you know client Scientist, all the way through you know Seth Godin who we all know from the marketing side but that turned his attention last year to the Carbon Almanac um, and he'll be back this year. We have the Chief Sustainability Officer of Target. We have people from all different you know walks of life, startups, um, some of the fellows from Planet Reimagined. So it's really for us that's where it starts, right? That'll create the conversation. That'll create the content. From there, we're able to use our broader platforms, right, through, you know, digital as well as, you know, print to amplify, you know, that message and disseminate the information. Because I'll even sort of admit, the events are echo chambers, right? Most of the people who come to the event already buy into the idea that there's a problem and that we're all here to solve it. But, you know, then how do we disseminate the information and educate? So I see ourselves you know, from a, from a more traditional media side of how do we then take the content, the video, the editorial, and then push that out to the broader readers, to our broader audiences, you know, if for nothing else, that they learn a little, that they may take some type of action. Because I think most media companies, the frustration is you pick a topic, you do something on it, Maybe you get a little education, and then there's inaction, right? What is that follow up step what is the the it's the so what right like what could we do and that's why you know again, being involved in planet reimagined and seeing the so what right seeing the okay great here's an idea, how do we take it and really implement it and then really the question is which is sort of out of my control, and our control is scale right is is how do we then take it from you know, a pilot or a proof point or a convening or an article, and really impact at a at a scale that's going to make a difference, um, right? So, you know, I think that's the 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 next part. But you know, our our hope is that we just put the the smart people, the influential people that really can move the ball forward, and and again, hopefully from there, are able to to really create sustainable impact.
1: So. Jeff, can I give you a specific example of mm-hmm. one of these happening because of something that Josh made happen through a techonomy? Yes, please. That, okay, so the fellows that are going to be presenting their project and this year's Techonomy Climate, it all started from a talk I gave at the last Techonomy Climate, maybe two ago, where Josh introduced me to somebody who had the ability to help get this project up and running at Planet Reimagined. And what these fellows have done They're two postgraduate fellows who have created this massive polling study in partnership with Ticketmaster to understand how we can use venues, artists, celebrities, athletes, etc. to create change. And everyone thinks they understand what this means, but there has never been a study that actually says, yeah, when Beyonce says X, her fans are going to do X. No one has ever actually done a study to understand that. So we're doing this massive study with Ticketmaster to understand that, but then all of the steps for implementation. When you go to a show where do you want to see these actions being taken? Where? What kinds of actions do you want to be, to be taking? Do you want to take them on your phone through a QR code? Do you want mm-hmm. Beyonce to talk about them from the stage? Do you want it while you're waiting in line for merchandise? Do you want a in merchandise for taking the action? Do you want it in the car on the way home while you're waiting for the bathroom? What kinds of things are you interested in? Is it climate? Is it about immigration? Is it about healthcare? Is it about voting? And we're going after a bunch of different artists' audiences to create this toolbook for the music and sports industries, both on the artist side and on the venue side, to be able to roll out, and we're gonna be testing all of the results of this study over the next year, to create this playbook to reach hundreds of millions of people who attend these events with data backing it up. Not just saying, yeah, I think, you know, the people who are coming to this Patriots game that they'll care about (laughs) deforestation. Like, you don't know that. And Maybe. people are discussing. but now after meeting these people through Techonomy who have the resource to help make this happen, we have these fellows presenting the results of all of this data at a Techonomy conference now, and we're going to be able to make all of that concrete change and implement it across uh, venues over the next year.
0: I, that's an interesting point. I mean, it's the reverse engineering of knowing you have the audience. Now, what can you do with the audience? Um, and also not making the assumption that every Patriots fan, although it's a fair assumption that every Patriots fan is probably like, how is Mac Jones getting us out of third and seven? (laughs) Because I'm concerned. (laughs) Um, I'm a Lions fan. And also, like, you know, you want to you wanna see people who are optimistic. Listen to Lions fans right now. This is the first time in 50 years somebody's actually used the word Super Bowl. And I'm like, please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> Give me five wins and we're happy. Um, you know, that, <laughs> I, Josh, I was going to ask a follow-up. And if I got distracted by sports, I might lose it here. But you were you were talking. And one of the things that was top of mind when you were talking about media, and I might be even losing it as we go here, but i was I was kind of taken back by just the sheer yeah, I mean, you can only do so much right at the end of the day, you kind of leave it up to um where it can be spread you can you can start the idea, but then it has to live somewhere else
2: it has to germinate it has to, but you know as a media company, you know we could at least choose the topics we cover that can mm-hmm. create those sparks um you know so uh we bought uh, worth magazine about mm-hmm. uh, four years ago um worth is a 30 year old publication originally started by fidelity primarily to serve the financial advisor community and wealth management community um and and when we bought it um, you know, and and Jim McCann, the founder of One Eight Hundred Flowers, is 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 really our our chairman. Um, you know, we saw the opportunity to slightly pivot, not to abandon you know the audience and abandon the topics, but to to weave in a lot of these more responsible topics. And and we did it, yes, as a business, as a conscious business decision that next generation cares about these topics, um, but also as, you know, an an opportunity for us to to make an impact. So, you know, I think, you know, we're we're moving in the right direction um, with that. uh, And and hopefully, you know, we as a media company, by choosing the topics, will be able to move in the, you know, move people to taking action.
0: I always appreciate like, how candid you are about, like, yes, there has to be a business decision. And the other thing I was remembering now, as I was actually filibustering my own self, is that when you were talking about echo chambers they all exist right we are literally living in one right now we're all on the same side of the same argument right now but i would remember when i would listen to a bernie brown podcast and i go this is great we're talking about vulnerability and then realizing i'm like well yeah but everybody in this conversation about vulnerability it is a safe space because we're all there to talk about vulnerability that part's impossible and with the example that you give like yes we can be in echo chambers but in those echo chambers, we can have breakouts, we can find ways to then, you know, start to think beyond things. Um, it, I've I've grown to stop begrudging the echo chamber as much as like understanding, okay, cool. Now, now that we all know we're on the same side, what do we do with it? Um, but I mean, and that's not even a question. That's just a quick aside, but it's an appreciation of echo chambers. Yeah, and look,
2: look I mean, you uh, you happen to live in Michigan, you know, Adam, you know, lives in New York, I live in New York. You know, we host events in New York and San Francisco in towns that typically care about these topics. But when I look at again the platform we have with Worth that has a hundred thousand households, you know, of various demographics all across the country, that's what gets me excited. Is I can educate that market yeah. that may not have been thinking about, you know, sort of these topics um, to you know to really create that impact.
1: So. Echo chambers are an interesting thing for me because when I talk about climate issues, I feel like I'm in an echo chamber, but I feel like music is almost the anti-echo chamber. And -hmm. I'll give you an example. So on our last U.S. tour, we played a show in Dallas— and we write a lot of different kinds of music and there are lyrics about gay marriage there are lyrics mm-hmm. about having a female president there are lyrics about quinoa and i can't imagine a more you know progressive thing than quinoa but <laughs> you know we we have people from across the political spectrum attending our shows and i know this for a fact because glenn beck showed up to our show in dallas and then he tweeted about the show after saying I can't imagine you know, a better show for me to go to. The show was incredible. I started listening to AJR a handful of years ago because it allowed me to connect with my son. Now, Glenn Beck, in his Twitter bio, it says against ESG before it was cool. Yes. If you think about that, the power of music to convene people that are across so many different viewpoints, because they want to have a connection with somebody else. Yeah, it's possible if his son wasn't a fan, then he wouldn't have come to the show. But he wanted to connect with his son. He wanted to have that emotional connection. So he was looking for that medium to connect with his son. So music Hmm. is this really powerful way of convening people to break down those echo chambers. So if you can then use music in order to reach an audience about something else that traditionally lives in an echo chamber, that's where I see the real potential.
0: There was a question I was going to ask you, Adam, and you just set it up because I was going to ask you about three o'clock things. Okay. And, and, and I was going Well, and now I'm starting to think about going back, like hearing the song and going, uh, but, I'm, but I'm at the show. <laughs> so. Yep. But the yeah. question is, the question I was going to ask is obviously advocacy is built into lyrically into all of the music. Was that always a conscious decision or did it become a greater decision as
1: the platform became greater? Um, I think a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say a, a couple of different things here. So when we write music it's more about reflecting on the society that we see as opposed to making a conscious advocacy point. And to give you an example, Burn the House Down was a song that was written about the power of millennials and Gen Zs to use social media in order to affect political change. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about the anti-gun movement, but March for Our Lives took that song, picked it up, heard the message in it, felt that it resonated with them so much that it became their theme song as they were marching through the halls of Congress and they literally had a boombox and they were playing that song out loud as they mm. were fighting for, you know, new legislation. So I think of, of AJR as more of a mirror on society and the potential of society rather than being kind of a protest band for lack of a better term. Yeah,
2: yeah and sense. I think... It's it's interesting, and, and I'd love to, I mean, obviously fans self-select the music that they want to listen to and the bands they want to be fans of. As a media entity, obviously, similarly, my audience, you know, chooses that they want to read Worth. Um, but then you have the corporate side, right? Um, the, the corporate alignment, obviously, we all saw what happened with Budweiser, you know, making, you know, choices, um, uh, you know, Adam, at some point, right, there'll be a sponsor that may not be, you know, a tour that may not be happy. I know we may, we come across advertisers that might not be happy with, with certain sort of commentary. Uh, and this is where, you know, again, I do go back to, right, we're we're luckily in a position to choose that we want to focus on these, these areas. and um, And unfortunately, not everyone's going to go on that journey with us. Um, I get letters, you know, all the time when we send out copies of the magazine to new subscribers. And they're very candid about, you know, we've become woke. Uh, you know, they mm-hmm. use words like that. And I say, why? Because we care about topics that matter. Um, and, and I go back to, I don't want this to be a political conversation, but these topics have been highly politicized and, and you know, and ve- become very partisan. And no matter if it is gun control, you know, or climate. Don't we want a healthier planet for our kids? Don't we want a safer place? It's not a, a partisan issue. Um, but, you know, when you come down to brands and advertisers and sponsors of tours and all of that, um, ultimately, right, we're, we're making a decision which may not be favorable, um, you know, with, with some of the companies we do business with.
1: Let let me see if I can tell this story without naming the brand. It might be a little bit hard, but I'm going to see if I can do it. Everybody so, play along and see if you can figure it out while Adam talks. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were offered a show a uh, handful of months ago, and we agreed to do the show, and it was called One Thing. The show was called One Thing. And then about, I don't know, a week and a half before the show was set to play, We got the press release to approve and the show was called something completely different. And the show included the name of this brand that we didn't know was involved, but is very much not participating in the kind of change that I want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we pulled out of the show and they were very upset about it. They offered us a lot of money to keep doing the show, to, to keep the show on. And there was no way that in good conscience, even with taking the money and donating it to a great cause, that I could do that and continue to hold my, held, uh, uh, hold my, uh, my head high. But it did make me realize that the power mm. that a lot of these companies have as political change is happening, um, both from a financial perspective and from a brand recognition perspective, that they have the ability to affect political change for better or for worse. And I did it. I told the story without telling you. You did Brian. it. You Thanks. did it. The
0: PR person in me is so happy for you, Adam. but also like, but also you, you, you allude to like how hard it is going to be moving forward and is currently to constantly be fully aligned because Hell, if you didn't know, and then that thing changes the day before, or you it changes while you go up on stage, you don't have any idea. And then you have a fan base that's like, what did you guys do? So, I mean, this is going to be a constant where we're, you know, you, you we talked about it 30 minutes ago where, you know, there's a generation that's willing to buy more sustainable things, but it's also a generation that's like, hey, what are you doing? You are willing to make sacrifices that, you know, a generation before when Michael Jordan was like, I just sell sneakers, he wouldn't have done. These things change and evolve. Um, okay. As I close this podcast, this is always what I do. I, I ask three questions. I call it Keep It Short. The problem is there is no way you're going to be able to keep these answers short. I know this for a fact because I'm going to make all three of these questions related. Um, I'll let either one of you, whoever jumps in first, take each one. Um, but um, the first question is going to be, and you'll you'll kind of figure this out pretty quickly. Um, for the person who denies that climate exists, how do you change their mind? Uh,
1: I, I can answer that one. All right. You don't. It's a waste of time and you don't need them. All the data says that there are enough people on this planet that believe that climate change is a problem. And if you can work with them to make the change, we will have more than enough people Participating in this movement, if they haven't changed their mind already, there's pretty much no hope there. I love and, that, and Go I would just Josh. add to
2: that saying: is is uh, while I agree with that, I, I think we still have to continue to make the most compelling case possible that at some point we don't know what will be that data point that will ultimately change their mind. Um, so it's not completely futile, right? I think we will continue to put out the most relevant content, the most unbiased data that we can in hopes that those people will come along. I think to Adam's point, it's not worth the energy, um, you know, in pivoting to try to change their minds specifically. But it, but I do think that it's going to be that one aha moment that resonates with them. Um, and we'll just continue to to put out as much information as, as hopefully will convert them.
0: Perfect. I, I knew this. It was good. These weren't going to be short answers. Question two. How do you get the climate curious person to take action?
2: Adam, I'll let you go first. It's uh...
1: Okay. <laughs> um, the climate curious person needs to take the actions that don't change their day-to-day lives. We can't put too much of a barrier in their way. Mm. So it has to be the kind of thing that can be incorporated into their life and make their life more fun and more exciting. And so that's why the climate curious person has to be doing collaborative activities with their friends, with their family, things like that. So if you're making choices about what you're going to do with your friend group or your family, that's how you're going to get to that first step. If it's going to be that group think, that that group work towards climate action. Um I think I'll drive home the point we
2: we talked about earlier, there's no silver bullet. So for that curious person that there's a million ways that they could have an impact, Um, you know, through, you know, volunteerism, through being an entrepreneur, through, you know, changing their own behaviors. But, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, that there's no silver, you know, there's no single action that they should really explore what works for them in, in sort of how they move that, you know, the, the needle, Um, and and that they can engage in a lot of different ways.
0: Okay, so this is question three, and it should become slightly obvious, but I'll hope, hopefully. Um, How do you get the 1% of the most engaged to become better advocates for the others?
2: We have a pattern here, Adam, I'll let you start again. Okay,
1: okay. The 1% can be interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways.
0: The good one percent, the one, the good one percent that are actually like you know the the people that, well, the Twitter form you know t- formerly Twitter now acts the one percent of people who post the most and are most engaged or are most ardently following the movement, not the not the other one percent. But thank you, Adam.
1: <laughs> um, the best thing that they can do is become micro influencers, and what I like to say is that. You are more likely to listen to the opinions of somebody that's sitting around the table with you mm-hmm. than you are the people who are talking about climate science online or the people who are you know making policy change. You're more likely to listen to your parents, your friends, your family. Those are the ones that need to be much more vocal with the people that they have the most effect on, so that one percent needs to figure out how to communicate with the people who are there in person with them, not the people who are on Twitter, not the people who are on Facebook or Facebook exists anymore. Instagram. They both do, but Instagram's (laughs) far more popular. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's them and it's their micro connections and them being micro influencers. I, I mean, I
2: think the great thing is when we talk about some of the most influential people that have the largest audiences to impact change, you know, they are these generations that do care about, uh, these, these pressing topics. Um, I think it really does come down to the legacy, right? I think leaning into Mm -hmm. this is the legacy that these people will leave. And if they're able to actually truly help make a difference, um, what better way to be remembered as someone who actually, you know, sort of started a movement, uh, and, and created sustainable change. Well,
0: and this ties back to, Yeah, this ties back to Adam, that study that you were talking about, right? If you understand that how people, right, so you have the audiences and you understand how people want the message delivered, you still have to be the organization that wants to deliver the message. And so that's that's the most interesting, fascinating part of it to me.
1: Yep. And I think that when you say organization that's going to deliver the message, I think it goes back to the very first thing that we talked about at the beginning of this hour, which is... Everybody wants to hear the message and can hear the message slightly differently and from different people. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's from an organization, sometimes it's from in a trusted individual, sometimes it's from the government. The people who say, you know, I'm just gonna listen to what the government says, sometimes it, it has to be from there. It really is about who can reach all the right people using the right language, the right tools. And that's why what Josh said at the very beginning, why we need a thousand shots on climate, it's not just about all the different technologies. It's not just about all the different you know, organizations that are doing different kinds of movement building. It's about the thousand different ways we're talking about climate to reach as many people as we possibly can. Give us some
2: ways to find both the movement and both of you. Um, for, for us, you know, worth.com, easy, dot hcom All of our Techonomy climate information is there, uh, at WorthMag, Twitter, uh, at Josh Campbell. But yeah, we we hope that all of you will, yeah, join us on this journey, subscribe, contribute. We're always looking for people who are passionate about these topics to contribute to our platforms. Um, So yeah, we're in all the obvious places.
1: And we're at PlanetReimagined.com. And if you search Planet Reimagined on any social media platform, you will find us. And yeah, we always love working with people. And all of the studies and all of the fellowships that I talked about, it's not just about the fellows themselves, but it's about working with academic institutions, corporations, governments, people like Josh in the media. Um, It really takes a village to do climate work. um, And that's what we're doing at Planet Reimagined. come check out everything we're doing. I love this. I appreciate you both. I I love that we
0: got smarter about climate. We got smarter about the tactics because those are applicable to a lot of different creators that are going to do big things. And I got to have the mental picture of Glenn Beck hearing, if you're a fucking (laughs) racist, don't come to our show and him going, did I just hear that right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. I appreciate it so much.
1: Thank
0: you. Thanks, Jeff. All right, so usually it only takes about five to 10 seconds for it to upload, but we'll see how it goes. Thanks to Adam and Josh for sharing their passion about climate, creativity, and media. And their candid realism about how you need key stakeholders to make change occur. And a few laughs along the way. Thanks, Glenn Beck. Visit PlanetReimagined.com for more info and get involved. I tried and probably failed to hide my massive fandom for AJR. The new album, The Maybe Man, drops November 3rd. It's No Fluke is an original podcast from the Shorty Awards. It's hosted by me, Jeff Barrett. Produced by Jumi and soon Cover an episode art by Chelsea Shazano. Research and editing by Vashika Chudervady. Special thanks to Josh Campbell. If you like this show, please leave a five-star review. Share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback or guest recommendations, send an email to info at shortywards.com or Shortywards on Instagram. Take care.